we're honored to have Dr. Uh, Nick Rogers, Roy Rogers. Welcome to the Wild West. <laughs> He's going to tell you a little story about that. Uh, but his topic is about update in oral dermatology, and I think it's a very interesting topic. We don't seem to get a lot of uh, oral dermatology lectures. At least I didn't really remember a lot of that in PA school. Uh, Dr. Rogers is a graduate of the Ohio State University College of Medicine and trained in dermatology, dermatopathology, and immunodermatology at Duke University and the Mayo Clinic. He is a professor of dermatology and emeritus dean at Mayo Clinic Rochester, where he's practiced, taught, conducted research, and carried out a laboratory since 1973. Dr. Rogers has a keen interest in oral dermatology and medical education. He has published many articles, chapters, and books about oral medicine, in dermatology. His interests also include lichen planus, blistering diseases, and immunodermatology. He's lectured us in other SDPA conferences, and he continues to be a good friend of uh, PAs and the SDPA. So give me a warm welcome to Dr. Roy Rogers. I'll take it and turn it off. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, and it's great to be back with the Society of Derm PAs and here in my hometown now. I'm a snowbird. I've escaped Minnesota for October, November, December, January, February, March, April, and go back in May, and uh, go back about a week, a month now. This is If I had known it was, could be this good, I'd have done it right out of kindergarten, but working about a week, a month through the rest of the year and more intensively in the summers. So I'm delighted to be back with you and I'm going to update you on topics of oral dermatology. I bring you greetings from the Mayo practices. You do have some speakers from Rochester and from Scottsdale and Dr. Swanson will be talking with you about dermoscopy later on. Mayo Clinic Rochester is in the southeastern corner of Minnesota. That's about the only thing south about the state of Minnesota is where Rochester is in the state. But it is uh, just a, a bit west of the Mississippi River. So to our east of Rochester, we have beautiful hardwood forests, trout streams, ski hills, and uh, pretty uh, um, parks lovely area that was the lateral moraine when the glacier pulled back from Chicago, built up this riverbed. To our west begins the Great Plains. Many uh, buildings in downtown Rochester, a large uh, practice of uh, physicians and scientists and physician assistants and nurse practitioners uh, in Rochester. And this is some of our buildings there. Now, in this picture are three people who have the name Roy Rogers. This is me. This is 1947 Snow Hill Country Club, Appalachia, Ohio. To my left, this guy, that's my dad. That's Roy Rogers Jr., because I'm Roy Rogers III. And he's a dentist, and he practices with his father, Roy Rogers 
senior, the first one with the name, in the practice of dentistry. To my right is a man who was born Leonard Sly. You will know him by his stage name of Roy Rogers the Cowboy. So here he is, uh, born in Duck Run, Ohio, not far from where my grandfather practiced. And as a matter of fact, my grandfather provided dental care for the Sly family. The Sly family were smarter than a lot of people in Ohio. They moved to California. So Leonard's mom and dad and Leonard and his brothers and sisters went out to California. And he was a good-looking guy, and he could sing, and he could play the guitar. And when he got out there, he got a band together. And they called themselves the Sons of the Pioneers. And they got a job with Republic Pictures. Republic Pictures made movies, and the movie star was Gene Autry. So every movie had Gene Autry. He wore white clothes and a white hat. The bad guys wore dark clothes and a dark hat. And Gene got the bad guys and the girl at the end of the movie. He sang some songs. The Sons of the Pioneers helped him out, and they sang some songs. And everything was going very well until World War II came along. And Gene Autry got drafted, and he needed to leave and go entertain troops. Well, there was a demand for movies. And uh, Republic Pictures decided that if Gene was going to be gone some of the time, they needed a backup. Leonard was good-looking. He could sing. He could play the guitar. He was a terrific athlete. He could ride the horse. He did all his own tricks himself. And, of course, he had excellent teeth because of his good early childhood dental care from my grandfather. (laughs) So he's no kin of ours. His name is Sly. No relationship. But they said, Leonard we want you to pick a stage name. And uh, because having a name like Sly at a time of war is not a good idea, you should get a name, a different name, and pick a name with alliteration. So when Leonard figured out that alliteration meant the first letter of your first name and the first letter of your last name was the same letter, he picked the name Roy Rogers. So we're the real Roy Rogers, and he's Leonard Sly. Here he is with his wife, Dale Evans. They were a terrific couple in the movies and TV together, wonderful people, and uh, I'm proud that he has our name, although he didn't give us a restaurant. Now here are um, some more Roy Rogers. This is me in time of the Vietnam War, uh, Happy Veterans Day, and my father, and this is Daddy Roy, the senior Dr. Rogers, And in the lap of Daddy Roy is a boy, a male child. So I was on active duty, United States Air Force. I was a flight surgeon, and my wife, Sue, got pregnant. And of course, in those days, you didn't know the gender of the child until it was born. So we discussed names. I suggested Roy for a son. She did not agree. She suggested Catherine for a daughter, and we did eventually have a Catherine, but not the firstborn child. So I was up flying with the pilots, and they said, bring the doc home. His wife has gone into labor. So by the time I get back and get from the flight line back to the base hospital, uh, the bassinet had left the labor and delivery area and almost got there. But on the tag, it said B-O-Y Rogers, not Roy Rogers, but boy Rogers, but Daddy Roy called Sue in the labor and delivery area and said, of course you're going to name this child Roy, and she said, of course, Daddy Roy. So this is Roy the Fourth, and uh, he's Rick and I'm Nick. 
we decided we had to do something about this. Uh, so we're different. We're Rick and Nick, and uh, he is married but no children. So we'll see what happens, if anything. So I bring you greetings from Mayo Clinic, where I've uh, practiced for 38 years. Uh, here's my office in dermatology. And this, I spent 18 years as a, a dean of one of Mayo schools. So that was my medical education office. I have no disclosures to make in terms of consultancies or research grants, but I will be talking a lot about off-label use of medications, so please be aware of this. And all of the images and photographs that you're going to see have been, give, we have been given patients permission for use of these in educational purposes. So our update today is about oral lichen planus, oral and genital lichen planus, lichenoid contact stomatitis, disquamative gingivitis means peeling of and inflammation of the gums, and an atypical form of gum disease, atypical gingivostomatitis. Oral lichen planus. Oral lichen planus is as prevalent as A, mycosis fungoides, B, psoriasis vulgaris, C, bolus pemphigoid, D, basal cell carcinoma, and E, pityriasis lichenoides chronica. Which extraoral manifestation of oral lichen planus is most common in female patients? Scalp, nails, esophagus, genitalia, and skin. We'll bring these questions back at the end of the lecture. Oral lichen planus. It's a very common condition. It's as common as psoriasis and alopecia areata. So about 2% of the population have oral lichen planus. It's about um, two times more frequent in women, and most patients are in the middle part of life. About half of the patients are asymptomatic, so it may be recognized by a provider or a dentist at an examination, and the other half have oral symptoms. So when we think about a disease such as this that affects 2% of the population, we want to classify this disease. How do we get our hands around something that is so common? And when we think about it, we, and of course, in dermatology, like to think about morphology. How does it look? How does that help us? And think of one group of patients whose lesions are raised above the level of the mucosa, and the other group of patients whose lesions are below the usual surface of the mucosa. So the raised lesion patients are more often asymptomatic. So then when we think about morphology, we put words to them, reticular, net-like, linear, papular, or plaque, atrophic, erosive, ulcerative, and bullous. So let's look at the raised lesions. And here is reticular lichen planus, looks like a lattice work, a network. Reticular with an erosion at the posterior portion a linear lesion along the bite line, trauma triggering, Kebener phenomenon, lichen planus. Here are, are thick papular lesions verging into plaques. 
annular, semicircular, arciform lesions. You know how Lycanplanus loves to be round or annular. Plaque-like in the deep sulcus. Lesions on the tongue and more plaque-like Lycanplanus. So those are the raised lesions and sometimes the patients don't know they have them if they're small but are sometimes not symptomatic. On the other hand, we have atrophic, erosive, ulcerative, and bullous forms of lichen planus. Here's atrophic gingival lesions, eroded lesions with a white border at the edge, an erosion. Now this is an oral ulcer, so you begin thinking oral ulcer cancer, oral ulcer cancer, so knowing how to recognize this is very helpful. Large deep ulcer covered by a fibromembranous slough down deep in the sulcus there. Ulcerative lesions on the lateral border of the tongue. You can ima imagine how symptomatic and troublesome that is for a patient. A bulla on the lateral border of the tongue of a patient with erosive lichen planus. So knowing what the lesions look like, classifying them based on morphology gives us a handle on what, how much trouble is our patient likely to have, and it will help us in thinking of prognosis. Lichen planus is a chronic and distressing condition. Like the previous excellent lecture talking about psoriasis being chronic, we need to make sure our patients understand that this is a chronic condition. What is the likelihood that this will go away by itself? If it's raised, it's better than if it's eroded. And these were patients followed over seven and a half years and only one in six patients had a remission in seven and a half years, a chronic condition. This is a graph showing you that uh, after a period of time, the chance of remission is really very low. Well, an oral ulcerative condition, a chronic oral ulcer that is not healing, you must think about cancer. Is lichen planus cancerous? Is lichen planus a pre-malignant condition? Can cancer develop where there was this chronic oral ulceration? Lichen planus is a pre-malignant condition. Here's a follow-up study of 327 patients from Copenhagen. And the purpose of the study was to estimate the incidence of malignant transformation of patients who had oral lichen planus. And they brought back 225 of these patients and the mean observation period was three and a half years. In 41 of the patients, so only 41 of the 225 had a remission and in one case, carcinoma developed after an observation period of five years. So the malignant transformation rate was less than 1%. Numerous other studies have shown that the likelihood in a lifetime of having a cancer develop in oral lichen planus is on the order of a 1% lifetime risk. That means the patient should be seen frequently by their dental provider or by their medical provider to make sure that oral cancer is not developing. 
So, oral lycoplanus is a pre-malignant chronic condition going to require long-term regular follow-up. Now, oral lycoplanus, if we think of it as a condition involving the mouth and looking at this then from the point of view of mucosal disease, is there lycoplanus elsewhere? And there are many extraoral manifestations of patients with oral lycoplanus. This is a study performed by Drury Eisen, a dermatologist in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's also a dentist, and he followed every one of these patients, 584 patients, biopsy-proven oral lycoplanus. He examined every bit of every patient personally, and in his examinations, he found that one in six patients had skin involvement, that scalp and uh, nails were uncommon, but that 19% of women, when they had oral lesions, also had genital lesions, and 5% of men also had genital lesions. So if it is in the mouth, think and ask about, does this involve the genitalia? The gynecologist may not ask about the mouth or think about the nails or the skin or the scalp. The dentist is not going to ask the patient to examine the genitalia in the dental office. So it's really our responsibility to make sure that we've got all the bases covered. Now, when you have skin and oral lycoplanus together, which is about one in six of those patients if you take it from the oral point of view, the skin is first in about one in six, the mouth is first in about two out of six, and they're simultaneous in the rest. Cutaneous lesions of lycoplanus is not the, our, our topic, but purple polygonal pyritic papules, the four Ps that I try to use to remember or, uh, cutaneous lycoplanus, their lesions are purple, they have sharp edges, they're polygonal, they itch a lot, and they're papules. It's a papulosquamous disease. Pterygia of the nails, thinning of the nail plate occurs. Perianal lesions in this patient. And scarring alopecia, which was nicely shown in the previous lecture, lichen plano pilaris, is one of the problems that can occur when lycoplanus involves the scalp. So we've looked at oral lycoplanus. We've seen it's a common condition, about 2% of the general population, a chronic disease unlikely to remit, a pre-malignant condition which demands continued attention. Genital lycoplanus, oral genital lycoplanus, a very important component, must inquire in history, examine the patient to be certain. Here are the studies again from Eisen showing a high prevalence. Here's a paper that we wrote on uh, erosive oral lycoplanus with genital lesions. Now in women, this is called the VVG syndrome, vulvo, vaginal, and gingival. So when you think of oral lycoplanus, and the lesions then are on the gingivae in all of these patients, the buccal mucosa is very common, but the gingivae here, VVG, in these patients. Well, here are what you might see is erythema, edema, swelling of the tissues of the attached gingivae with hyperkeratosis in the net-like pattern, eroded lesions, and you can see the erosion here uh, near the teeth, 
red inflammatory lesions above the teeth on the gingivae, eroded lesions of the buccal mucosa. And the vulva is equally involved with an erosive, very, very painful dermatosis involving the vulva, the introitus, and into the vagina, which heals with scarring. So like you have a scarring alopecia from lichen plano pilaris in the vulva of these patients, we have a scarring vulvitis, which leads to distortion and extreme pain in these patients. So recognizing this early will give us an opportunity to get onto some treatment which may stop the progression of this disease and give us control. When patients have the VVG form of erosive oral lichen planus, they also have lots of other things happening, multiple sites, ear canal, scalp lesion, esophagus. Here is the esophagus of several of our patients who have great deal of pain upon swallowing because of erosive disease of the esophagus. You can see how this would hurt if you uh, were eating and swallowing with eroded patches of the esophagus. So the VVG syndrome, the oral genital form of erosive oral lichen planus, is uh, a chronic disease of women. Skin involvement is pretty common. Scalp and nails, which are rare in unusual patients, are involved, as well as unusual sites like ear canal and esophagus. When we did biopsies or when we did immunofluorescent testing, the tests were exactly the same as you would see in lichen planus and excluded bullous pemphigoid, cicatricial pemphigoid, pemphigus vulgaris, and other blistering diseases. As you would expect, with a disease which follows along with scarring, the treatment is going to be challenging for us. Systemic corticosteroids work very well to control this condition, but cannot be used in long-term therapy because of their potential for side effects. So while it's a short-term bandage, it's not a long-term answer. So we need to look to other treatments, non-cortisone or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, and we'll spend some time talking about topical tacrolimus, an immunomodulator, which we've used for this condition. Here's an article in JAD a couple of years ago from Setterfield and colleagues in London. 40 patients uh, with the VVG, and they had scalp, nail, ocular, otic, esophageal, perianal, and cutaneous lichen planus. And they had a very special haplotype, a genetic predisposition to develop an autoimmune kind of condition such as this. So it's a chronic, painful, distressing disease. Many of our patients have developed fibrosis and strictures. Unfortunately, when we see some of these patients, they're sent to us or they come to us having seen gynecologists who have operated on them. And while they have removed some of the fibrotic tissue, of course, in the immediate post-operative period, we have a full-blown Kebner phenomenon, which makes their disease worse. So don't let anybody operate on these patients until you have the disease under complete control medically. This also has patients who are men who have the penogenital syndrome, and lesions are usually on the glands, but can be on the shaft of men, and there are not a lot of cases. Drury and I have a number of them. Here's an article in the periodontal literature 
responsive to clobetasol 0.05% cream. Now the gold standard for treatment of oral lichen planus has come from a Cochrane review. And Cochrane is a library in the United Kingdom and they pull out all of the studies and then throw out the four patients who were treated openly with such and such, but get the bigger studies and preferably the studies that were well controlled and come to a conclusion for us on evidence-based medicine, what works and what works the best. So the gold standard for oral lycoplanus is a high-powered, fluorinated topical corticosteroid such as Lidex or Clobetasol or drugs of that category in a gel form or an ointment or a cream form, whatever your patient prefers, applied with the pad of the finger to the involved tissues. And so this is an effective form of therapy, but of course it must be used several times a day on and on and on. So oral and genital lichen planus. Oral lycoplanus is a very treatable condition, so thank goodness if we have a disease which tends to be chronic and five out of six will have their disease on years and years and years, thank goodness we have good topical and systemic therapy. Now our job when we see these patients is to record where the disease is present, ask about extraoral lesions, give some value to severity, and consider oral candidiasis. Candida loves oral lycoplanus. It's eroded, there's a lot of fibromembranous slough, candida grows in the, in the, on the mucosa very easily, particularly if it's inflamed. And any patient you have who's under good control with their treatment and they call you and say, I'm flaring, think first that, it's not a, that their drug is no longer effective, but that they've developed a secondary oral candidiasis. So how do we care for these patients? We have them maintain meticulous oral hygiene. They should be seen and followed regularly by their dentist. We need to make sure we have a periodontal disease or gingivitis under control because that's chronic inflammation. It just feeds into the process. Control or treat any secondary candidiasis. Topical, aerosolized, Intralesional and systemic corticosteroids work very well in bringing about control of oral lichen planus. Unfortunately, if you treat your patient with systemic corticosteroids and then you stop it, they'll get a rebound. And so they'll maybe worse after they recover. They go into remission with the corticosteroids, but then it comes back uh, uh, much more uh, troublesome. Topical retinoids have been uh, effective and helpful. The gold standard, the Cochrane Review standard, would be Lidex or better, 0.05% gel. We'll talk about other things that we use in the treatment of these patients. So Lidex gel or protopic ointment, 0.01%, and I usually give them a 15 or a 60 gram tube, and it should be applied with the pad of the finger to the areas involved by massaging it in. There's no keratin of the mucosa. Nothing stops it from being absorbed. And tacrolimus works very well, as does topical fluorinated corticosteroids. But it needs to be applied, and then applied uh, frequently. Uh, three times a day after meals, don't eat or drink for 15 minutes, and at bedtime. 
to prevent the development of oral candidiasis, sometimes we'll use nystatin oral suspension or nystatin pastilles to treat or to prevent candidiasis from occurring. And if it's really bad, we can treat them systemically with diflucan. This is a treatment that is labeled for oral candidiasis and this is an off-label use, we're using it the way I've written here. This is on your little thumb drive, the details of the treatment for you. Other forms of treatment systemically that we could consider would be Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine. We, you know we use that for lupus erythematosus as well as lichen planus. Some patients have used metronidazole. Here's one of our antibiotics that is a great anti-inflammatory agent. Cyclosporin has been used. There have been a number of papers, both topical and systemic. Now, if we think of cyclosporin and tacrolimus, cyclosporin is about as big as an 18-wheeler over-the-road truck. Tacrolimus is a smart car. It's tiny, so it can get absorbed very much easier than a cyclosporin. Sometimes we have very challenging and difficult patients and we need to try other things like Celsep, Dapsone, interferon, corticosteroids. So novel topical treatment for oral lichen planus, and that's with the TNF alpha inhibitor tacrolimus, the immunomodulators. Here's the first of a series of patients we published uh, with our patients. Oral lichen planus is a T cell mediated disorder, and immunosuppressive and inhibit T-cell-mediated inflammation include the calcineurin inhibitors, cyclosporin and tacrolimus. Tacrolimus is a small molecule, a small molecular mass, and penetrates easily into the mucosal surface and is available. So the first study was a retrospective review of 13 patients. And within one week, many of our patients had symptomatic relief and almost all of the patients had relief at the end of four weeks. This is working way faster than topical corticosteroids, which are the Cochrane Revue gold standard, but it takes weeks and weeks and weeks for the topical corticosteroids to work for six, eight weeks. Whereas with tacrolimus, you get a quick impact and you can maintain that impact with reducing the amount of medication. Complete and partial response. The key is, uh, you can see how nicely this worked in these patients with lip lichen planus. Now, if you continue treatment, you can maintain control. But like the psoriasis study, when you go from daily treatment to several times a week, the potential for a flare exists. And when you stop using tacrolimus, a flare will be coming along in many of our patients. So it's effective in the control of symptoms and the clearance of the lesions of oral lichen planus, symptom relief promptly, clearing of their lesions, and uh, it's well uh, uh, tolerated and very effective. Some patients will say that it burns and hurts when, uh, we, when they apply it. And it's, it's sort of like having the cracks on your fissures and having an ethanolic or an alcoholic base for the products we're using. 
we don't have very, very many alternatives. This is in, an, is in anointment. And I tell them, just put up with the pain. The pain is there because you have an erosion. Until we heal the erosion, you're going to have the pain. Please uh, use the medication and get your disease under control. And most patients tolerate it well. Here's a study uh, paired with one of, of the ones we did from, the, from uh, England showing uh, tongue uh, healing of lesions. And this shows total surface area of lesions diminishing over an eight-week course of therapy with topical tacrolimus. Here's a, our follow-up study, which was in the JAD. 37 patients followed a mean of 1.3 years. 89% reported symptomatic improvement, 8% partial or to complete clearance. If you stop the medication, it will tend to come back on you but it's very effective. It also works well in vulvar disease. Here's our paper on vulvar disease. 16 patients with symptomatic vulvar lichen planus. All patients uh, were recalcitrant or other treatments. When they stopped the treatment, the lichen planus tended to flare and uh, it is effective in uh, treating our patients. Now, once you bring the disease under control, it's like of the other uh, stories we've heard this morning. You need to maintain control. It's like treating a fungus infection. You don't quit once you look like you've got it under control because it takes a long time to kill those fungus. You know, we kill bacteria when they divide. So a bacteria divides every minute or two, a new bacteria is made. Uh, with a fungus, they're very lazy. It may take 8 to 12 hours for a fungus to divide. And if we're going to kill them with our antibiotics, we have to wait for them to divide. So that's why it takes so much longer to kill fungal infections than it does for bacterial infections. And for a disease like psoriasis or lycoplanus that's very, very chronic, we need to maintain control once we get control, hold the line for another month, and then begin to reduce the intensity of the therapy. And some of our patients have gone into a complete remission where they forget to use their medicine. They may still have access to it, but uh, they hardly need it or they use it a couple of times a week to maintain control. So the outlook is very optimistic for these patients with lichen planus. Prompt action, tolerated well. All right. Any questions about presentation to date, oral lycoplanus genital. I'm going to stop here, take a few questions, and we'll move on. Yes? Comment on hepatitis C issue. Hepatitis C is very common in Italy. Italy has a number of people who write wonderful papers about the association of lycoplanus and hepatitis C, and it is true all the way around the Mediterranean where the disease is somewhat endemic. So there's no question about it that many people with hepatitis C have oral or cutaneous lycoplanus and vice versa. Move to Northern Europe, get to Denmark, United Kingdom, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Very low, almost the same as the general population. Move to the United States, Drury Eisen, 584 patients, all biopsy proven oral lycoplanus, only a couple of patients with hepatitis. So for our practices here, unless they're recent immigrants, then I would think it's not necessary to expend the resources chasing something that is such a low prevalence rate. Yes? 
Yes, the, the vulvar lichen planus is, is likely a developing uh, cancer there is about the same as oral lichen planus. Skin lichen planus, much less. And the question that was unasked was, what do I do about the black box insert on the tacrolimus package? And I tell them that uh, we understand that tacrolimus is a drug used to prevent a kidney or liver transplantation from rejecting their organ. And what do you have to do to keep that from happening? We have to suppress their immune system. When we suppress their immune system in these patients, they're more likely to develop cancer. So development of cancer is a big problem in transplantation medicine. Success saved the life, but they might get cancer because they're immunosuppressed for the rest of their lives. So tacrolimus is an immunosuppressive drug. It's administered orally in doses a million times, a hundred thousand times, ten thousand times the amount of drug we're using. Now the pediatricians have advocated that we have the black box warning because they're worried about children getting cancer from this terrible drug. So I explained to the patients that the amount of drug they're getting is one millionth, one one hundred thousandths, one ten thousandths of the amount of somebody would get, and it's not a lifetime risk situation, and I think it's perfectly safe. And so I attempt to reassure them before they get to the pharmacist. Now, the other thing you have to say to your patients is, please, please, please don't tell the pharmacist what you're gonna do with this. It says not for external use or internal use or whatever on it, so they're not, the pharmacists sometimes get upset that they're putting it on their mucous membranes. Tell them it's okay. I said it was all right. Lichenoid contact stomatitis. Now, oral lichen planus is one of a number of lichenoid tissue reactions. And lichenoid tissue reactions can be the result of contact allergy. So this is lichenoid contact stomatitis. We're focusing here then on dental metal restoration of teeth. You know, there are two major kinds. One is mercury, silver-colored amalgams. The other is gold, gold crowns and dental restorations. Silver-colored amalgam fillings are very common, and whether or not this is, uh, causes allergy is a controversial topic, and some people believe that, that uh, this can cause an allergic reaction. Now, the cartoon here says, the woman is saying to the provider, I have metal fillings in my teeth. My refrigerator magnets keep pulling me into the kitchen. That's why I can't lose weight. <laughs> Here is a patient with oral lichen planus, which you can see down in the buccal sulcus, some hyperkeratosis, an erosive lesion, and dental metal restorations in the teeth. Here's a study from the JAD. Amalgam removed from 18 patients with oral lichenoid lesions, 13 of 15 who had positive patch tests, had improvement, and two out of three with negative patch tests in, uh, cleared, so they felt that this was related. Here's a big study in the archives of dermatology. Oral lichen planus and allergy to dental amalgam restorations from Leindecker and colleagues in the Netherlands to determine contact allergies in patients with oral lichen planus and to monitor the effect of partial or complete replacement of amalgam fillings 
following a positive patch test. Contact allergy to mercury compounds was important in the pathogenesis of oral lichenplanus, especially if there was close contact, so that the lesions of lichenplanus should be in apposition to the dental metal restoration and should not be occurring where, there are no, where there's no metal in the mouth. Same for gold. Gold is a metallurgically uh, inert, difficult to solubilize, but gold salts are used in metallic gold in gold-colored dental fillings and restorative crowns. Here we see very nice gold crowns uh, restoring these teeth and the lichenoid erosive lesions along the lateral border of the tongue. Here, deep in the sulcus, an erosion, also on the lateral border of the tongue with a fiber membranous slough, large new dental gold crown. New dental gold crown, some partials, replacements here, but look at the erosive lesions here. This is a bridge, but adjacent to, but not where there's no gold, no reaction. Where there is gold, there is reaction. Here's a study from the American Journal of Contact Dermatitis from Louisville, Kentucky. 51 patients with oral lichenoid lesions, replacement fillings in 10 patients, nine of 10 positive patch tests all cleared. Here is our experience at Mayo Clinic, 23 patients with oral lichenoid lesions, 21 of whom were women. We patch tested them to metals. And in 17 of these patients, replacement of the dental metal suspected was carried out and they improved in 89%. Those who didn't have replacement, only one of six improved. Now, we do a full battery of metals, and we'll show that to you. And here are several positives, one to palladium. Palladium could be used to substitute for gold. Here's gold, here's platinum, and there's gold. There's another gold positive patch test. So we use five salts of mercury, hoping to have two or three, or maybe even more, positive, which sort of helps us know that where we're going is we're moving in a scientific way on, based on firm evidence. And we'd like to have two or three gold positive patch tests. And so we use three salts of gold in our patch test series. And we read at three days, five days, and one week later, because sometimes metals are delayed in coming up. So oral lichenoid tissue reactions, such as oral lichenplanus, lichenplanus like stomatitis, oral drug reactions, oral uh, lichenoid contact stomatitis, all can occur. And when you think of contact stomatitis, we need to, uh, based on our examination, see lesions in apposition, have a high index of suspicion, and a biopsy isn't really necessary while, while it can be helpful. Positive patch tests to metals such as gold or beryllium or inorganic mercury are, may be relevant. And the removal of the dental metals to which the patient has reacted, of course, is going to be necessary for clearance of the problem. Now, our patch testing performs two functions. First is to identify those metals to which the patient is allergic and which would be a good idea to remove from the mouth. But those patch tests that they did not react to, palladium, beryllium, and other precious metals, 
noble metals, which are used in dental crowns, then can be used by the prosthodontist or the laboratory or the dentist to replace knowing that their patient isn't allergic to them. So there's not only a, a diagnostic but a prognostic element to this patch testing. Clinically relevant patch tests, the gold and mercury are usually positive with several allergens. Always should we should be cautious to relate positive patch tests to clinical findings and uh, that should be part of their evaluation. This is an editorial that Dr. Bruce and I wrote about inorganic mercury. So this is based on a clinical examination, a high index of suspicion, and patch test results. So oral lichen planus, in summary, very common condition, as common as psoriasis and alopecia areata, divided into two groups, raised lesions, which may be asymptomatic, depressed lesions, which uh, are uh, often symptomatic. It's a chronic and distressing condition. It's pre-malignant. It has many extraoral manifestations. It often has genital manifestations, so we need to ask and examine our patients. It's very treatable. And it, lichenoid tissue reactions can be allergies to dental metals. So oral lichen planus is as prevalent as psoriasis and alopecia areata. Which extraoral manifestation is most common in female patients? Genitalia. Very good. Now, quickly through disquamative gingivitis. I've got three minutes after 11. Is that right back there? Okay. Disquamative gingivitis means inflammation of the gums with peeling. It's a reactive process. It's not a disease sui generis. It's not a disease that stands alone, but it is a reactive process, and our job is to figure out why. Why is this happening? So it could be pemphigoid, pemphigus, lichen planus, psoriasis, contact stomatitis. This typically involves the gums that we use to chew, called masticatory mucosa. That's the mandible, the maxilla, the hard palate, the area that's more well keratinized because it's the chewing mucosa, with redness and swelling, peeling and desquamation because blisters are occurring. And these are the causes of desquamative gingivitis. Lichen planus, mucous membrane pemphigoid, pemphigus vulgaris, contact stomatitis or psoriasis. Here's a patient with desquamative gingivitis. You can see the erosion here and the desquamation, the edge of the blister. Here's another edge of the blister. So this is a subepithelial blistering process. This is oral pemphigoid. Here's oral lichen planus with peeling of the gums. Here are hemorrhagic blisters of the attached or masticatory mucosa. Now, the most common cause of disquamative gingivitis is pemphigoid. Lycoplanus is the second most common cause, and the rest of them are very rare and unusual. So, pemphigoid. Now, if we think of pemphigoid, we know it's a blistering disease. We know that there are sometimes mucosal manifestations and skin manifestations. Sometimes they're associated with scarring. 
these types of pemphigoid, ocular, cicatricial pemphigoid, and sometimes pemphigoid is non-scarring, like bullous pemphigoid. So if we're thinking now of the gingivae and looking at the gums in terms of desquamative gingivitis, we're focusing then on localized oral or gingival pemphigoid. So here are 129 patients with mucous membrane pemphigoid that I have seen. 72 of them presented with their disease historically by gums only, no place else, peeling inflamed gums. By the time they came, 30 of them had developed mucous membrane pemphigoid, but 42 patients had only gingival disease when we established the cause for their reactive pattern. So let's drill down on this 42% of 42 persons with gingival involvement. They're older patients often. The disease here again is chronic systemic therapy with corticosteroids, Imuran, immunomodulating agents is potentially toxic. Sometimes the disease progresses rapidly, but most of the time with pemphigoid, it's a very slow process. Our goal with treatment then would be to stop the inflammation causing the gingivitis, peeling, desquamation, blisters, allow old lesions to heal and not allow any new ones to come. We have used Dapsone to treat these patients. It's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent using the doses slowly, building up in these patients the amount of Dapsone to the usual treatment dose. Now, if a patient came in with dermatitis or pediformis, otherwise healthy young person, start right out with 100 milligrams a day. May increase, depending upon how they do. Well, these are older persons, and I begin slowly. What does Dapsone do? It's a hemolytic drug. It attacks red blood cells. It makes them lice. So you have an anemia that you've induced with your medication. Well, an anemia induced by a medication means you don't have enough red blood cells. And this would be like going from Minnesota to Denver, Colorado on an airplane. You would be slightly out of breath because you really need two extra grams of hemoglobin to live at a mile high then you knew to live at sea level. That's why all the athletes go and train at high altitudes, because that's like getting a blood transfusion without having EPO or actually having a blood transfusion. So I give my patients a slow ride to Denver. I begin 25 milligrams a day for three days, 50 milligrams a day for three days, 75 milligrams a day for three days, slowly increasing it. So their bone marrow is a gentle, getting a gentle hit, and they can start kicking out reticulocytes, new baby strong red blood cells to counteract the hemolytic anemia. And it, it gives us a much better chance of using the drug successfully in these patients. So if you think back then to desquamative gingivitis and looking then at the subset with pemphigoid, we recognize that about 40% of those people who are presenting with oral pemphigoid will evolve on toward typical mucous membrane pemphigoid, but the rest will have localized gingival disease. These were all confirmed, immunopathology, histology, et cetera. Of our patients who, who, that we treated, 37 of 42 had complete control and half of all our patients not only achieve complete control, but we were able to taper and discontinue all of the medications. So here's a disease pemphigoid, which is said to be chronic and with you for the rest of your life, 
But when you make that diagnosis early on gingival tissue with histology and immunopathology and treat them effectively, you can treat half of them into a complete remission and take away their medication. So the outlook is very optimistic for these patients with desquamative gingivitis, and it's a fun problem to solve. One of the several things, tissue is necessary, and so here are some of the references if you wish to delve further into that topic. The final presentation is atypical gingivostomatitis. And when you see this, you'll never forget it. And uh, when you recognize it, you'll be able to deal with it and know what to do. The patients may come to you with a sore burning mouth and it has a dramatic clinical as well as a histopathologic picture of bright red fire engine red gingivae. And here is a patient with this. Notice that it's the attached masticatory gingivae. When we get to the sulcus, it's not involved. Bright red erythema and edema. It's another patient. You can see the erythema and edema of the gingivae, not involving the hard palate. The histopathology is equally dramatic. What we see here is intense inflammatory infiltrate of the lamina propria, abutting and then invading into the epithelium. So a plasma cytoid and T cell inflammatory infiltrate attacking the epithelium. This is a presentation of allergic contact stomatitis, different than lichenoid contact stomatitis. This is more diffuse, erythema, edema of the attached gingivae. And it's most often due to flavors or flavorings in toothpaste, in mints, in chewing gum, comes in contact with the mucosal surface, causes this reaction until you identify and remove that, why your patient's going to continue to have their problem. This was a, originally developed as a disease that had not been there, and then all of a sudden, it was everywhere. People wrote about it as, uh, from several different sites. Dr. Harold Perry at Mayo Clinic with Norm Defner, one of our Mayo Derm residents, and Phil Sheridan, one of our periodontists, saw a number of these patients. Dr. Perry wondered what could be bothering these people. The history he got was they were all chewing spearmint chewing gum or double mint chewing gum made by Wrigley in Chicago or using Crest Mint toothpaste made by Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. So he got a hold of the Wrigley people and the Procter & Gamble people and he asked them to send the flavor. They said, oh, we can't do that. It's a proprietary secret. And he says, I promise not to tell anybody. Don't tell me what it is, just send it and we'll use it for patch testing. Well, they knew that some of their patients were calling the 800 number and telling them they were in trouble, so they did. He did the patch test. They were positive. They stopped chewing double mint or spearmint chewing gum and they got better, and they stopped using Crest Mint toothpaste, and they got better. Now, these are good companies that have survived, so they changed their supplier of mint flavoring, and Crest Mint toothpaste isn't causing so much trouble anymore, and Spearmint Double Mint and Spearmint chewing gum isn't causing so much trouble anymore. The big problem now is cinnamon in Big Red, Dentine, and some of the other uh, uh, chewing gums. So if you see bright red, swollen, a gingivy. This is atypical gingivostomatitis, and it is a um, contact reaction. 
Now this guy Silverman wrote a paper called The Epilogue to Plasma Cell Gingivostomatitis. It was sort of like Mark Twain saying, you know, my obituary is premature, I'm still around. And uh, the number of cases, of course, dropped off dramatically, but they're still out there and uh, you'll see them. And as long as you can recognize them, why, you'll know what to do with your patient. So I hope today with oral dermatology that you are like the person who is blindfolded in an attempt to define and describe the elephant. And it depends upon what part of it you have a hold of, what you're thinking about it. And I hope, and I hope that I have taken the blindfold off, opened up your eyes to oral lichen planus and, and oral dermatoses, and I want to thank you very much for your kind attention. Uh, thank you very much for that excellent talk. Um, can you tell me, have you ever used or ever tried off-label use of the Dapsone, um, the topical, to the oral um, pemphigus? The question is, have, have I tried off-label use of topical Dapsone on uh, oral dermatoses or oral conditions? Not yet. Okay. It's, it would be, uh, an it, uh, first I didn't think it would work. I was surprised and pleased that it has shown some efficacy and it will be another good tool. Right now I'm riding the Tacrolimus horse so hard and it's doing so well for me. And I never get off a fast horse in a race, but uh, when I run into trouble, I'll try it. Thank you. Thank you. Again, good lecture. Do you ever use tetracycline orally for the um, oral pemphigus? You know, we use that sometimes with it when patients get it um, in other areas. Have, is that, have you had any luck with that? That's a good question. A topical tetracycline used uh, as a swish in the, in the mouth, uh, mouthwash. There used to be tetracycline suspension. It got a bad name because people gave it to the kids while their teeth were developing, and so then the teeth were distorted permanently with enamel defects. So as long as the child is 9, 10, 11 years of age, they're not likely to have any trouble with their teeth, so tetracycline could be used uh, for them. It's been used a large, uh, largely in uh, oral diseases in suspension, usually added to Benadryl or something, and uh, it's a mildly antimicrobial. We know it's also an anti-inflammatory agent, but uh, it doesn't really have a lot of specificity. And tomorrow when I talk about acute oral ulcers, I'll show you some double-blind studies using tetracycline. Thank you. Very good. Thank you very much for your kind attention.